morning. How we doing? Are you cool enough? Thank God for air conditioning. Amen. You know, it always amazes me how God does things that we, we don't expect him to do and we don't think he's going to do. God is uh, such a wonderful God that cares about us and wants to be involved in our lives and wants to do what we, we need done in our lives. I, I, I thank God for this one thing, that when we fail to seek him out, he always seems to be there to seek us out. God took the initiative to find us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our waywardness, and, and bring us back to himself, and that is an awesome thing. You know, um, I, I'm going to be talking a lot this morning about storms and shipwrecks. Some of our lives have been uh, in the middle of a storm. Some of us are the product of shipwrecks. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about that today. I pray that God will speak to your heart and certainly uh, pull you out of that storm and get you through that shipwreck and plant your feet on some solid ground so that you can live your life for him. Back in 1985, the RMS Titanic was discovered and thus it marked the end of one of the most famous hunts in, in all underwater archaeology. It was uh, certainly an amazing and, and valuable find, but it was not as valuable as that 18th century galleon, the, the San Jose. That too has been found in recent years. It was found by a U.S.-based uh, uh, salvage company that, that now claims it. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, they're trying to determine in the courts who it really belongs to. Columbia, uh, so, uh, South America, they, they claim it. Uh, Spain claims it. This salvage company claims it. And, and it's really interesting why they're all so interested in that shipwreck. It, it's because of the value of what's there. It's been estimated that that shipwreck and the, the gold and the silver and the precious stones that lay at the bottom of the ocean as a result of a storm is worth about 17 billion U.S. dollars. I think I'd be interested in it too, don't you? Amen. What a treasure. What a find. Recently, underwater archaeologists have found 22 new shipwrecks in just 23 days off the coast of Greece. It's been speculated that the majority of those that are at the bottom of the ocean there are the products of some severe storms and raging winds and, and high seas. Storms, no doubt, throughout the history of maritime travel have, have certainly sunk a great many ships, and it's probably the number one reason why ship goes, ships go down. But of all the ships that have sailed, many of which we know about and many of which we desperately want to find, no one knows where this particular one is. No one even knows the name of the ship that carried probably the most precious cargo that God ever had uh, on earth. And I'm talking about the ship that transported the Apostle Paul from Rome or from, uh, from Caesarea Philippi over to Rome. If you read the 27th chapter, you'll find that that there were actually two ships. One is called a boat, the other is called a ship. The last one is an Egyptian ship from Alexandria. Um, it, it went down. We're going to talk about that today. Nobody knows where she's resting, but this one thing I do know, with her sinking came the rise of one of the greatest leaders that the world of Christianity has ever known. And, and I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Now, we, we've talked about Paul now for probably a year as we've looked through the book of Acts. Uh, Paul wore a lot of hats. 
He was uh, no doubt the last and probably the most effective of all the apostles. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. He was an evangelist. He was a preacher of the gospel. He was a pastor of pastors. But what we so often fail to see and we overlook so many times is that he's probably one of the greatest leaders that the church has ever known. I've tried to think of a contemporary that might be somewhat his equal and the only person that I can come up with that would probably be on his level is Billy Graham. A lot of our young people don't even know who Billy Graham is. One of the greatest evangelists that have ever lived. The last crusade he preached when he was over in Asia, he preached to like six million people. And I feel good if we've got 300. <laughs> you can bless me though if you'll fill all these chairs up, amen? <laughs> six million people. He certainly was a great leader that God has used through the years. And, and our church and, and, and churches around the world certainly need more and, and even more godly and greater leaders than we have. So does our world. Our, our nation does. I I said to you just a few weeks back that it's yet to be seen what will happen to this nation when the Lord calls Billy Graham home. He's had a lot of influence. He gave counsel to at least five of our presidents. That's pretty awesome. God has been known to spare a nation just because of the faithfulness of a, of a single humble servant. Who knows what will happen to our nation. God certainly has had his share of leaders through the years, but you know what? So is Satan. Satan is, uh, is grooming leaders even as I speak. I heard it said years ago that Satan has had someone ready in every generation to step into the shoes of the Antichrist. He's coming. And when he comes, he will be a great but wicked and deceiving leader. Now think about it. He won't just lead a nation. He'll lead the entire world. The entire world will be under his leadership. The historian Arnold Tornby said, the nations are now ready to give the kingdoms of the world to any one man who will offer us a solution to our world's problems. He said that probably 40, 40 plus years ago. I got news for you. We got a whole lot more problems today than we had 40 years ago. Henry, or Paul Henry Speck, one of the, the planners of the European Common Market and the former Secretary of General of NATO, he said this, we don't want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and lift us up out of the economic morass for which we are sinking. Send us such a man and be he God or be he the devil. We will follow him. We will receive him and follow him. Again, that was spoken quite a number of years ago. Our world was longing then. It's longing now for leaders, somebody that will come by and say, I will get you out of the mess that you're in. The world is longing for that kind of leadership right now, for somebody that can do that. And, and that perceived need is intensifying. Just look at what's going on in Europe. Europe wants such a man. America is getting there. The Bible says he's going to come. He could very well be alive right now. Think about that. 
The Antichrist could very well be alive right now and what a shipwreck this world will be in when he comes. John MacArthur writes that our society places a premium on leadership. Government, the military, business, education, even sports teams are all desperately seeking qualified leaders. Books and seminars and tapes and, and training courses on leadership abound. Some people even make their living traveling around lecturing corporate executives on the finer points of leadership. There are a lot of experts out there. I have quite a few books in my library on leadership and a lot of them came from a man by the name of John Maxwell. You'll hear me quote him today. There are a lot of experts out there, but, but no one knows more about leaders and leadership than God does. Throughout the history of mankind, God has raised up in every generation leaders to lead his people. Leadership is seen throughout the Bible. It starts with Moses and goes all the way through Paul. The 27th chapter of Acts that we're going to look at today certainly highlights the qualities of leadership, the greatness of leadership that Paul had. The story of his emerging leadership during this storm-filled journey across the Mediterranean Sea and the resulting shipwreck is seen in several stages. We're not going to take time to read all the scriptures, but in the first eight verses, of, of Acts chapter 27, you see the start of that epic voyage. And it, it started in Caesarea. It makes its way up around the Mediterranean all the way to Rome. You also see in the, the next verses 9 through 12 the decision to stay in port that should have been made. There, there should have been someone that was in charge of that ship that made a good decision to stay in port when the, when the weather was such a dangerous situation to sail in. In verses 13 through 26, you see the raging storm that they encountered. And words probably cannot portray its fierceness. But then in verse 27, you see the revealing nature of the shipwreck. And, and the beautiful thing about this storm is that it helps us to see who Paul really is. In the midst of the storm, Paul's character shines through the dark clouds of that storm. And it exposes his leadership qualities. And they're truly amazing. We can see, uh, we can certainly learn about leadership from looking at Paul's story. And we will be able to see Paul's leadership style. And you're going to see that it's all biblically based. And it's what we need in our world today. There are some key principles that you're going to learn this morning, I hope, that will help you to be a better leader in whatever form you lead, but certainly I hope it will help us to choose better leaders. Amen? John Maxwell says it takes time to become a leader. doesn't happen overnight. While few, few people appear to be born leaders, the ability to lead is actually a collection of skills, nearly all of which can be learned and sharpened. Becoming a leader is a lot like investing in the stock market, he says. What matters the most is what you do day by day over the long haul. By continually investing in your leadership development, your assets compound, they grow, they add to what was added before, resulting in substantial growth over time. So as I read that, as I understand something about leadership, friends, we can grow as leaders for tomorrow, but we can also choose better leaders today, amen? And we need to do that. 
Edward C. Emma said, Our nation and its institutions are crying out for leaders. There seems to be a vacuum or a void uh, of, of those old-time leaders that we once had, men who, who stood their ground and led with skill and, and with, with the blessings of God. This morning, I want to expose you to seven leadership principles that, that I've seen in Scripture as I've studied this storm that Paul went through that I think are a must for our nation, and I think they're a must for our church and other churches. Here's the first. Folks, we need leaders who can be trusted. We need leaders who can be trusted. Luke writes, when the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of an army officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. And we, we left on a boat. Notice he says a boat. He doesn't say a ship. He says a boat. I don't know how big it was. But it was a boat whose home port was at Ramatum. And it was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province of Asia. They're going up the, the, the top side of the Mediterranean. The next day... When we docked in Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so that they could provide for his needs. Now, that's important to me. As you can see, Paul must have been and surely was a man that could be trusted. Julius had only known him a very short time, but long enough to know that Paul was a man of his word. And there must have been a conversation where Paul said, if you'll let me go ashore and meet my friends, I'll come back. I won't escape. Even though he was a prisoner, a prisoner that Julius could not afford to lose, this man, this leader, let Paul go ashore to be ministered to by his friends so that Paul could get maybe food and water and clothing, whatever he needed. That's big. That's big. Paul was one of those men that could be trusted. One of the most critical elements of all relationships is trust. Whether it's in a family or in your business or at church or in, 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 in friendships or even government, there's got to be trust. Where there is trust, strong, positive relationships are built and then fed by encouragement and consistency. Anyone who is trusted at that, at that height of a level has taken the time and made the effort to develop their character and they've earned the right to be trusted one of the things about trust is trust is earned. You can't demand trust. You earn it. You earn it through integrity. John Maxwell writes that trust depends very little upon a person's name, his station in life, how much money he has in the bank, or his position. The key to consistent and dependable trust, dependent trust, lies in the character of the person who leads. Anyone who leads has to have uh, has to be responsible in order to be trustworthy. And when you choose leaders, you need to always look for people who have proven themselves to be able to keep their promise. Amen? We need people that can be trusted. Listen, there's absolutely no way to establish a reputation of being trustworthy than to be trustable. When I thought about that concept, that principle, I thought about Charlie Brown. 
Charlie Brown has this incredible trust of human nature. Lucy, on the other hand, is known for not being so trustable. Watch what I'm talking about. I've got a football. How about practicing a few place kicks? I'll hold the ball, and you come running and kick it. Oh, brother. I don't mind your dishonesty half as much as I mind your opinion of me. You must think I'm stupid. Oh, come on, Charlie Brown. No. I'll hold it steady. No. Please. You just want me to come running up to kick that ball so you can pull it away and see me land flat on my back and kill myself. This time you can trust me. See, here's a signed document testifying that I promise not to pull it away. It is signed. It's a signed document. I guess if you have a signed document in your possession, you can't go wrong. This year, I'm really going to kick that football. Ah! Peculiar thing about this document, it was never notarized. There's always a loophole, isn't there? Yeah. Charlie's always trying to look for the best in Lucy. He's always hoping that her character is going to change and that she'll become a trustworthy person. Sadly, in real life, bad character typically only produces more bad character. What you see is what you're going to get. Typically, there's just going to be more of the same the next time. Praise God, most of us are not as naive as Charlie Brown. Oh, me. <laughs> I hope we are. I think we're smart enough to know that before you trust somebody to lead you, you need to see that that person has proven himself or herself to be trustworthy. Untrustworthiness is definitely a character flaw. Political leaders that can't be trusted don't need to leave. They just don't need to leave. Do you, do you remember the advice that, that Jethro gave to Moses, his son-in-law? When Moses was trying to hear the cases of all the people, trying to settle the issues, the squabbles between the people, what did Jethro say? Well, it says, he said this, from the people at large, choose capable and God-fearing men, men who are trustworthy and incorruptible, and then put them in charge. Trustworthy and not tending to be corrupted. Jesus said, unless you're faithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large ones. If you cheat even a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibility. Paul was trustworthy. He was the kind of man that needs to lead in the church. He's the kind of guy that we need to be. But he's also the kind of leader that we need in our world. We also need leaders who will step up and lead from the front. In verse 8, Luke says, Luke writes, We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Haven near the city of Lassie. We had a lot of time, we, we lost a lot of time. 
The weather was becoming dangerous for, for long voyages by then because it was so late in the fall. And, and Paul spoke to the ship's officer about it. And he said, Sir, I believe that there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and injuries, and danger to our lives. You've got to think about it like this. Paul was a preacher. In fact, he was a prisoner. He wasn't a sailor and he certainly wasn't a sea captain. And at this point, God had not even specific, specifically spoken to him about the storm. What you hear here is, is Paul using his leadership skill and his wisdom to discern a problem before it happened. Paul just looked at what was going on and, and he formed a, a thought. Ted Levitt said, the future belongs to people who see possibilities before they become obvious. That's leadership. Being able to see the big picture, looking ahead, knowing what's coming. Unfortunately, as someone once said, most people are more comfortable with old problems than new solutions. Isn't that true? Why? Because change is involved. And we're not people who likes change. Paul saw the danger and he warned the people who should know that danger was coming. A third thing I see, we need leaders who have good judgment. When Paul said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on, that was a statement based on good judgment. It was a judgment call. It was just using good common sense. Paul had the ability to be able to discern the situation. I mean, he looked at the weather. The weather was bad. It was getting worse. He saw that they were running behind schedule. He knew things weren't on time. It was getting late in the fall. So travel by sea was almost over for that year. He could see what was going on. Again, good leaders have to have the ability to see the big picture. They have to be able to define the problem. That takes good judgment. They have to make wise and timely decisions, and they have to be able to lay out plans. Bad judgment on the part of leaders can cost people their lives. Folks, life is precious to God. I heard a black pastor this week say, all life matters. White lives, black lives, brown lives, blue lives, all life is precious to God. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, Peter says, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. Think about it. He does not want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. We also need leaders that speak with authority. There, was a, there were a lot of people on this ship most of them seemed to realize that they were about to go down and they're about to wreck on the rocks, but only one man spoke up. His name was Paul. Paul saw the problem and he had something to say about it. Look at verse 29. It says, They were afraid that they would soon be driven against the rocks and along the shore, so they threw out four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. They were desperate. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the bow. 
Paul saw what they were doing and he said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. That's good sense. Hey, soldiers don't know how to sail ships. So the soldiers cut the ropes and let the lifeboat fall off. Paul wasn't a captain. He wasn't even a soldier. wasn't a sailor. He wasn't even part of the crew, but he was a leader. And he was a godly leader that believed everything God told him, and he wasn't afraid to take charge when the ship was about to sink. When everybody gave up, Paul stood up and he spoke up. Again, John Maxwell says, Circumstances do not make you what you are. They reveal what you are. They expose what you are. Paul was a true leader, and on top of that, he was a godly leader. Folks, we need leaders in our country that will not abandon the ship, that will not abandon God, nor his word, nor his ways. We need people who speak with authority, the authority of God. We also need leaders who know how to encourage other people uh, as I've read this story, it's obvious that the people who were on that ship with Paul had every reason to fear. They were in a terrible, terrible storm. It said they hadn't seen the stars nor the sun in days. The sea was raging and the winds were howling and the water was coming over the sides of the ship. They were in grave danger. Well, guess what? So is our nation. So is our world. Fear in America is at an all-time high. I said this two weeks ago. In 28 years of pastoring, and I'm not being critical when I say this. Just listen to me. I have never seen my congregation take more vacations and longer vacations in 28 years of pastoring. You know why you're doing that? You're tired. You're stressed. You're stretched. You're trying to find rest and relief. We have to have that. We need that. Fear in America is at an all-time high. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen people this fearful since what happened right after 9-11. Gallup poll back in 2001 published the 10 top American fears. You know what they are? Can you guess the number one fear back in 2001? Ronnie can name it, snakes. 51%. 51% of America is afraid of snakes. How many of y'all are afraid of snakes? Public speaking's number two. Heights, being closed up in small spaces. Spiders, that's my number one. Next to spiders are needles. I can't stand needles. Mice and bugs. That's Joyce. <laughs> she don't like bugs. Flying. A lot of people don't fly. Dogs, storms, doctors. A lot of fears out there. But it's changing. Today, it's not the same as it was in 2001. The Washington Post, which is a very liberal group. 
I'm trying to be kind and trying to keep politics out of this, guys. But they wrote 83% of registered voters say they believe a terrorist attack in the U.S. resulting in large casualties is likely in the near future. Why did they write that? Because they know the fear that we're in. Guys, if, if, if the last two to three weeks is, is not an indication to you, whew, I don't know what will be. There's a growing fear in our country. There's a growing fear in our world. And I'm not a fear monger. I just have got eyes and ears. And it doesn't take long to see. Three different times, Paul sought to encourage the terrified passengers on board that ship. This is what he said. We don't need to abandon ship. He said, you're not going to die. Not a hair on your head is going to perish. So eat something and stop worrying. Good, solid, sound advice. But for some, it sounds stupid. There were some on that ship that wanted to jump off right then. But verse 36 says, Then everyone, after Paul spoke these words, everyone was encouraged and all 276 of us began eating. Well, that was the number that we had on board. Now, why did they do that? It was because when Paul spoke, he spoke with calmness. It was because he spoke with confidence and optimi optimistic trust in the Lord. You see, God had encouraged Paul. And Paul turned around and he encouraged everybody on that ship and they released their fears and they worked together to stay alive. That is what a good leader does. He encourages and he unites. He brings the people together. The writer of Hebrews says that we need to think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now, that the day of his coming, who's coming? Jesus is coming. The day of his coming back again is drawing near. Guys, the Lord is not far from coming. I believe that with all my heart. And right now we need leaders who have courage, who will encourage. We also need leaders who don't lie but speak the truth. It's not always easy to tell the truth. You know, it's easier to lie than it is to speak the truth. Y'all agree? It is. But it's the truth that sets people free, especially God's truth. Look with me at verse 23. But take courage, Paul says. None of you will lose your lives even though the ship will go down. For last night an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid. Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So Paul looked at him and he said, take courage. For I believe in God and I, or it will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. God sent an angel with a message and he told Paul, 
what he needed to know. And Paul told them, the people on that ship, exactly what God had told him. He had no reason to lie. He had no reason to tell an untruth about what he had been told. Instead, he had every reason to tell the truth. Why? Because he wanted everybody to live. And so did God. And God told him how that could happen. Paul was a leader with godly character. He was a truth teller. You didn't have to give him a lie detector test. You could just know that when Paul opened his mouth and he spoke, truth came out of it. He was a man of God. It's important that leaders be that way, and this is why, Proverbs 6, 16. God said there are six things that the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill innocent, the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord among brothers. Guys, we need leaders who have the favor of God that are not afraid to speak the truth. And we need them now. We also need leaders who lead by example. One of the things I love about studying Paul is you see that Paul practiced what he preached. He lived what he taught. Verse 33, it says, Just as the day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. Why? Why did he urge them to eat food? It's because he cared about them. It's because he had had his eyes on them. He'd been watching them. He'd been observing what they were going through. Look at what he says. He says, you've been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat some, something now for your own good, for not a hair of your own head will perish. Notice verse 35. Then he took some bread and he gave thanks to God before them all. Can you imagine that? Storms raging. Paul takes a little loaf of bread. He breaks it. He bows his head and he asks God to bless it. They're worried about living and Paul's making sure he thanks God for everything. Mm. Said he broke it, prayed to God before them all and he broke off a piece of bread and he ate it. Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. And after eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. That's what I like about Paul. Paul. Paul didn't just tell them to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. In fact, he showed them just how important it was by doing it himself. Paul believed that God was going to do exactly what God said he would do. And that's why he ate some food. That's why he set an example. And he remained calm and he remained confident. And his example motivated the others. And his confidence in God gave them confidence. Effective leaders don't push people from behind. They lead people from the front. You ever tried to move a big piece of chain? You get 50 foot of big heavy chain and you got to move it from one place to another. How do you get it there? You ever tried to carry it? It just keeps falling away and falling away and falling away and falling away. 
You ever tried to push it? The more you push it, the more it just wads up in front of you and the harder it gets. But if you'll take one link and you'll grab it by the end and you'll start pulling it, all the links will follow. That's what a leader does. But he has to do it from out front, by example. I say this bragging a little bit, but I'm careful to remain humble as I say it. That is why your pastors here at Harvest will never ask you to do something that we're not willing to do ourselves. Right there. Did y'all notice how beautiful the campus was when you drove on it this morning? Anybody notice that? The grass is cut. The cattails are mowed down. There's mulch in the flower beds. Do you know how long it takes for that to happen? Anybody have any idea? About two and a half days every week. Four, maybe five people working. Why do we do that? It's because there are over 9,000 people that drive by this property every day. And they're making a judgment about who we are based on what they see. And if the grass is tall and there's weeds in the flower beds, people are going to drive right on by. It makes a statement. And, and, and I, I want to thank everybody that's involved, first of all, for doing it. It needs to be done. And guys, you, some, of you, some of you guys and gals are working your rear ends off. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's so important that I've joined that team. I told Eddie, I said, you can count on me every week. I'm going to do something. I don't know what it'll be, but I'll do something. Why? Because I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. Some of you have gotten on to me for cutting the grass. Some of you rode by and waved at me or blowed the horn. <laughs> for goodness sake, stop and help. <laughs> Kidding. You know, in just a few weeks, we're going to be starting the renovation on the old building to make it more youth-friendly, to match the needs of our growing youth ministry. Some of you noticed that there's already been some demolition take place under the back porch. We had that done this week. If, if I had had to do that or if me and Ronnie and a few others, we, we'd still be on it. We'd probably be doing it for weeks if we survived. What I need you to do is to consider helping. We've set aside a week to make that project happen. It'd be a beautiful thing if it could happen in a week, right, Ronnie? But it probably is going to take longer. But the more of you that will tithe some of your time and your talent to come help us in that week that we work, the quicker and the better that will get done. And the quicker we'll get things to where they need to be so that we can do the kind of ministry that we need to do. It'll give us some classrooms for our youth. It'll better organize things. And it needs to be. I promise you this. All three of your pastors are going to be working that week on that project. 
and I encourage you to come join us. Good leadership always leads by personal example. In every kind of leadership there is. There needs to be an example. Look with me at verse 39. It says, when morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and they wondered if they could get between the rocks and get the ship safely to shore. So they cut off the anchors and they let them, uh, left them in the sea. Then they lowered their rudders and raised their foresail and headed towards shore. But the ship hit a shoal and ran aground and the bow of the ship stuck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by forces of uh, the force of the waves and it began to, to break apart. Verse 42 said the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump uh, overboard and, uh, first and make for land. And he told the others to try for it on planks and debris from the broken ship. But look at this last little phrase. So everyone escaped safely ashore. Because of Paul's leadership that day, even when the ship was a total loss, not a single life was lost. Everyone was saved. All 276 people that were on board that ship, they survived that wreck. Why? Because it was the will of God. Because of Paul's trust in God. Because of Paul's leadership. Because they followed Paul's leadership. Uh, when he set a good example, they did what he did. When I was reading that the other day, I thought about what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, I ask you to follow my example and do as I do. Later on in that same chapter, he says, and you should follow my example just as I follow Christ. Paul chose to follow Jesus and the example that he set. His goal, his goal in life was to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a worthy goal, I think, for all of us. Folks, attitudes frame your actions. And, and Paul, when he wrote the Philippians, said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his own rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he die as a slave? Why did he allow himself to be punished as a criminal would be punished? It's because he wanted all your sins to be forgiven. It's because he wanted things to be made right between you and God. It's because he wanted your soul to be saved. Do you remember the last recorded question that King Agrippa asked Paul? We read it last week. Do you remember it? King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? Do you really think I'm going to be a Christian just because of you, Paul? Look at what Paul said. Whether it is a short or a long time, I pray to God that not only you but every person listening to me today would be saved and be like me. You see Paul's heart? 
Yes, he was a leader, but he was also a soul winner. And his prayer was, please, God, make these people that are listening to me today right with you in their heart. Clean their soul. Erase their sin. Make them ready for heaven. Get them ready, Lord, to serve you here and ready to spend eternity with you there. I ask you today, honestly, in all honesty, have you truly made a decision to follow Jesus? He's the leader we need to really be following. Amen? How, much, how many of us are really following the Lord? That's what's important. So many of us get up every day and because of the schedules that we keep and the things we know we have to do in that day, we get up, we put our feet on the ground and we run. And we run and we run and we run and we don't even give God any time during the day. And maybe if we remember before we close our eyes, we say a little prayer. But you know what? Most of the time when we start that prayer, we go to sleep before we finish. Am I right? Yeah. Following Christ is about living for Christ. I said this this week to a couple people. It's not just about letting him save us from the consequences of our sin. It's about letting Jesus be the Lord of our life. What does it mean to let him be Lord? It means to whom I belong. When you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you give your life to him. And I remember saying this this week. Be careful when you do that. Why? Because you never know what God's going to ask you to do. I've had people say, well, you, you were born and raised in Florida. We can tell you've got an accent. I can't help it. But they say, how did you get from Florida to Virginia? One word answer, God. When you say yes to God and Lord, be my Lord, then you have to go where he wants you to go, say what he wants you to say, do what he wants you to do, and be who he calls you to be. Amen? How many of us are doing that? So many times we're willing to pray a prayer we're willing to walk the aisle, even allow a pastor to baptize, but then we just go back and we live our lives the way we've always lived it. That's not making him Lord. That's getting your ticket punch and hope, hoping it's sufficient to get you into heaven when that time comes. Well, friends, listen. Jesus will be your Savior, but only if you make him Lord. And the truth is, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. What is he to you today? Is he really Lord? Are you following him? What do you need to do today to be obedient in fellowship to the Lord? Hmm. Everybody knows. You know right now as you, as you sit there you think about it. You know what you need to do to be obedient to the Lord. I'm praying that you'll be obedient. Not for me but for you because you've heard me say this and it's so true it didn't just wasn't just true the last time I said it it's true all the time God blesses obedience 
and he corrects disobedience. But he blesses obedience. Some of you need to trust Jesus Christ today for your, for your, for your salvation. Some of you have done that. Some of you have never done anything beyond that. There's some of you that need to be obedient in believers' baptism. Some of you need to make public your faith. Make public your faith. Let people know you were saved. Some of you need to connect with the church. and Let, let us help you grow in the Lord. I, I don't know what your need is today. But I pray that you, you do and you will do what needs to be done to please God. Will you pray that with me? Will you? If you will, let's close our eyes and bow our heads and let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful to you that you're God who has a plan for our life. Your first desire is to save our soul, but then the rest of your plan is all about helping us to be prepared for eternity. It's about shaping us into the image of your Son to help us be everything you created us to be. Lord, we all, we all need to draw closer to you. We all need shaping. We all need a touch from you today. We need you to encourage us to be obedient to the things that we know we should do. So, Lord, please help us today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you're a God of second chances we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what we've done, no matter what we've not done, you want to hug us today, love us, and encourage us. You want to lead us on in through life. Please, Lord, help us to surrender our will to yours. In Jesus' name, amen.